When you lift your hands, it's not that you know the answers. When you see us, those of you that may not understand, when you see us running around like that, when you see us screaming, when you see us sitting here, you don't know how to get it out. When you see a full-grown man laying on the floor, there is a reason. Because we know in our spirit and we're trying to bring it out in the physical, but we know that we know that we know. And we refuse to look at what these eyes can see. Because God has given us another set of eyes. God has given us another set of ears. We know in our spirit, we know that we know that we know. And so we can scream, we can shout, we can dance and don't care who is looking at us. Because we know greater is he that is in us than the devil that's in the world. Last week I started on the power of the blood of Jesus. And I showed us from scriptures how Jesus bled in seven places and what each one of those represented. How he bled in seven places. I'm not going to go into that again. If you didn't get that, go back to, the, to Facebook or to our sermon app and listen to that sermon of last week. But you will see how God, he's such a good planner. Nothing catches him by mistake. He's not scratching his head. Oh, Satan got me this time. No. Everything is planned out. First John chapter 4 verses 9 to 10 in NLT. NLT. I'm going to read my foundational scriptures before I go into the message. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. He says, this is real love. There is fake love, but this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And that real love is directed at you. That everlasting love is directed at you and me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion. It's not that you're going to come. It's you're already there right now. It says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the great assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, and that is you. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and finally to who? To the blood. Now the blood is now an entity in heaven. When you go to the courts in heaven, because it talks about God being a judge here. So when the enemy comes, like the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, when he goes and accuses you day and night, this is what he's talking about. He says, but you have come. It's not like you are, you're, you're already there. And when you get there, guess who is waiting for you? The angels are there. Those that have passed before us are there. We, as even here, as you're here right now, the Bible says you're seated. Where? In heavenly places. You are there in the spirit. Jesus is there as the mediator. And guess who is also there? The blood. 
that he shed for you is there. And what is the blood saying? Mercy. Mercy, no matter what you've done, the blood is saying mercy. Jesus is saying, Lord, this is not like Abel that was killed. I willingly spilled my blood for them. And not only was the blood shed on the earth like Abel's blood was only shed here. Jesus shed his blood here. Then he went to hell, presented the blood to the devil and took everything from the enemy. Took that same blood, went to heaven and gave it to the Father. So the blood was shed in every area. On heaven, on earth, and in in hell itself. That is the blood that we approach when we go into the courts of heaven. When the enemies are coming and accusing you, you have the blood sitting right there. And in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, it says, All who dwell on earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. God's plan of redemption was set in place even before Adam fell. From the foundation, before the earth was created, before you were created, God already set it in motion. God already had Jesus to die for us. What kind of love is that? Think about it. So this week is Holy Week. This is the week we want to sit down and think about what this whole thing Christianity means. I don't want you to just go through this week like any other person. If you're saved, take the time to meditate on what happened this week. There are historical facts. There are scientific facts. There are medical facts about what happened on this week. And I'm going to take you through that this morning. I'm going to be very careful to let you know what the spiritual implications are when we read the historical facts and when medicine tells us what happened to Jesus, I'm going to also let you see what was happening in the spirit. On Thursday evening, he sat with his disciples on the southwest part of Jerusalem in a home that had an upper area and he ate dinner with his disciples. And he told them, this is my body which is going to be broken for you. And he gave them a cup and says, this is my blood and I'm going to pour out for you. They didn't understand fully what he was talking about. When they finished eating dinner, they decided to walk to the northwest side of town where the Mount of Olives were. And in the Mount of Olives was a garden called Gethsemane. That was where they went to press olives to make oil. So he went to the pressing place. Gethsemane means the pressing place. He went there to be pressed and crushed. Willingly he went there. He said that they got there around 9 p.m. Because they walked. And when they got there, he could already remember I told you Jesus was a 100% God, but also 100% man. As God, he knew what was waiting for him. And as a man, he was terrified. He was dreading. And the Bible says, when they got to the garden, they said he fell. He didn't kneel. He fell on his face. And here was Jesus. That was God himself. Warning prayers from his 
disciples. He said, watch and pray with me. Came back one hour, they were fast asleep. What does that tell me? When you are in your period of pressing, when you are in your period of crushing, you better be able to pray for yourself. Because everything that God has for you, there's nothing of essence that God will do for you and through you that will not come through crushing. Crushing. God will crush you. He crushed his son. Took him to the place of crushing and crushed him. If Jesus needed the prayers of those men that were with him, we need prayers too, but don't rely on the prayers of people for you to get to your destiny. You need to be able to follow your face yourself and pray for yourself. He fell on his face and for three hours, the God of heaven, the one who was there, the very foundation, the ones that they had the meeting together, Father, Son, and Spirit, all this was decided before the foundations of time. Now he's negotiating with God. If you know what was happening at this time, you will never take what Jesus did for you lightly. Because because of you, the Godhead was about to be split. Because of you, for once, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were not on the same page. What kind of love is that? The Bible says we were useless to him. We were of no use whatsoever. I read that scripture last week. We were of no use whatsoever to him when they decided, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Godhead, that the Son would come to die for us. He was part of the negotiations. And here he was saying, God, Father, if it's my will, no. Three times he prayed that prayer. Take this cup away from me. The God who made heaven and earth. He was afraid. He was in terror because he knew what was coming. He didn't want to do it. There are times God will tell you to do stuff. That your whole spirit, soul, and body will resist it. But I'm telling you today, no matter how inconvenient it is, no matter how hard it is to your flesh, when God tells you to do something, do it. It will not kill you. If you don't stay in that air condition. For one week, if it maybe tells you to go somewhere for medical missions or, or some kind of missions, like they will be going for a good two months, it's so easy to say, no, the inconveniences that I'm going to have to go through. But in pressing through times like that, that you will get to experience God in a way that you've never experienced Him before. God is not a God of air condition and, and drive through and eight, ten hours of sleep, and movies. No. We have to be believers who are willing.
to put this flesh under. Jesus showed us how. If our life is all about comfort, there are people not here in church today, but it was so hard to wake up. But they stayed up to 2 a.m. watching movies and playing games. And you want to be in the same heaven with Paul? We have to realize that Christianity is not, it's not a religion of convenience. It is not. And that's where we are missing it. We want it to feel good to the flesh before we do it. That's not what Jesus showed us. John chapter 10 verse 30. Jesus himself said, I and my Father are one. And in John chapter 14, verse 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sakes of the works of themselves. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and we are one. For once, that oneness was threatened. He said, Father, if it be your will, and we saw where for once... He was able to put his will under the will of the Father. And going back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve said, No, Lord, not your will, but my will. And yet finally in another garden, because it started in the garden, it had to end in the garden. Here was it in the garden, Jesus saying, Not my will, but your will. But did he want to do it? No. And then we go from there to 12 midnight. Because he prayed from night to noon. To midnight, sorry. At midnight, the, 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 the temple officials came to take him. And by the way, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. In those days, that was what you paid for a slave. So he was bought with the price of a slave. To take, make sure we are no longer slaves to the enemy. I told you one time, about a few weeks ago when I preached here, there were over 300 prophecies about Jesus. Over 300. There was a study that was done. I mean, this is a university study. They took eight of those prophecies. And they said, for one of those prophecies, those eight, for one of them, to come true in the life of Jesus, not eight now, they just looked at all eight of them and said, for just one to come true in the life of Jesus, it would be like you take a coin and you mark that coin and then you put the coin on the ground and then you fill the whole of Texas with the same kind of coin and then you shake it all up and then you fill it up to four feet deep now. Then you shake it all up and you going into that place, going to Cyprus and saying, okay, I'm going to pick this one coin and turn it around. And it be that coin that was marked for Jesus to fulfill the prophecies that were fulfilled. That's, what it would, that's the, poss- the possibility or the probability. That tells you that for him to fulfill over 300, you will be a stupid person to say that someone orchestrated all of that. Isaiah was saying something. Jeremiah was saying something. 
Ezekiel was saying something. Zephaniah, Malachi, all of them at the same time talking about this one person. So they arrested him. Between midnight and 6 a.m., they had tried Jesus six times. Three times, one would be first took him to the prophet, uh, Caiaphas, the priest. Then they took him to the, to the temple elders. Then very early in the morning, they took him to the Sanhedrin, where the Sadducees and the Pharisees were. They couldn't find anything. Mark chapter 14, verses 55 to 56. It says, Now the chief priest and all the council saw testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And so you see here, somebody, have you ever seen someone being tried at night? They wanted it to be done undercover so they can have their way finally to kill this man. So they now asked him, you said that you are, you are king, king of the Jews, you are the Messiah. He said, you said so. And they said, finally, he gave us something. So they accused him of blasphemy. They took him to Pilate. Pilate said, I don't find anything in him. In Luke 23, verses 14 to 15, said to them, that's Pilate, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, because Pilate, you know, examined him, did all he needed to do, said, I find nothing. So he sent him to Herod. Pilate was like the governor, and Herod was like the one over the jurisdiction where Jesus was. Herod found nothing. Herod sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate was going to let him go free, but the people said no. The same people on Palm Sunday, the same people that took palms and were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was on Sunday. And here we are on Friday morning. The same people are saying, crucify him. Just don't live with, for people, period. <laughs> when they shout and praise you today, Seven days later, they are ready to crucify you. So that's a whole story on his own. And they sentenced him just to appease the Jews. Pilate sentenced him to crucifixion. <laughs> In fact, let me tell you all a little bit. Don't fall asleep on me and I'm going somewhere. <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about crucifixion. You know the word excruciating? That word came from crucifixion excruciating, there was no way to describe the pain of, uh, uh, of crucifixion. That's where the word excrucious came from. Excruciating pain, because there was no pain to describe it. What they would do is when you're crucif- sentenced to crucifixion, they will first of all take you to be scourged. And that means they were going to be beaten. They would tie you to a tree or tie you to a block and then they would take the whips. Those whips were probably as thick as that. And just had about seven stripes coming out of it. But then one of those stripes had another seven stripes to it. 
and they would tie to it bones of sheep. They would tie to it metals. They would tie to it rocks that were really sharp. And so when they held that whip, it was not like seven times seven, like 49 stripes to it. And when they got you, one time was like 49. And when they were beating you or scourging you, they were not trying to just stay on your back. You know that, right? So anywhere that thing got, when they flipped it to you, they, they pull it, it's taking flesh with it. Now, some scholars say, oh, Jesus was whipped 40 times. The Jews, when they were whipping somebody for stealing or whatever it was, the person was condemned to die, they would whip them. It was 40 times the law of Moses said to do. But they would do 39 because peradventure if somebody counted wrong, they would only do 39. But you have to remember it wasn't the Jews that were flogging Jesus. It was the Romans. So they didn't follow that rule and that law. So they beat Jesus from all the, the studies of house scourging and all of that. When they said typically by the time they were finished with the person, that person had lost so much blood and fluid and all the organs would be exposed because when they are beating you is the face, it gets to your stomach, it gets to your chest, it gets to your legs... Inside the person would just be a walking shreds of flesh. And typically they died within hours from loss of water. But for Jesus to survive that, and not only survive that, they gave him a cross to carry. That's why he couldn't carry the cross. Remember, he was human. That's why he couldn't carry the cross. From where the scourging was done to Golgotha was only a quarter of a mile was about 600 meters. He couldn't. Physically, he couldn't. That's why they got Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him. And when they got, got to Golgotha, I'm telling you all of this, I want to bring it so that this week, if you can, go watch The Passion of the Christ. If you can, if you can stomach it. My kids are like, no, mom, we don't want to watch it. But if you can stomach it, I would really encourage you to, to, to go watch that movie. But even as bad as that movie is, really, it's not, a good, it's not even as near as what he went through. When they go to Golgotha to crucify him, he said that he must have lost so much blood. Remember now, the last meal he ate was when? On Thursday evening at about 4 p.m. So he was hungry, he was thirsty. He'd been beating, lost a lot of blood. When he was crucified. And when they crucified people. Before they said it would be, the nails would be in the wrist here. But not too often they would, they would do it in the palms like they did Jesus. Or they would tie the person. Why it was so excruciating, why they call it excruciating pain. Was because when. That person was tied or nailed to that block of tree and the, the feet held together. You have to support your whole body from, your, from those hands. And so there's that tendency for you to slide down and your diaphragm to collapse. And so they will use the legs that is nailed to the tree to raise themselves to take one breath. 
And then they will have to go down again and then they will do that again to take a breath. Jesus was put on the cross at 9 a.m., the scholars say. And he died at 3 p.m. So for six hours, for every breath, I calculated that. Let me see if I can find it. Because I want you all to, I want you all to understand the implication of what happened. A normal person would take 12 to 16 breaths every minute. And so for six hours, Jesus had to pull himself up to breathe. About 4,000 times. And remember his back. There are strips of flesh. So he had to pull himself up on that rough. The, the, the cross wasn't like sanded down and looking smooth, right? He had to pull himself up every time he took a breath on a cross that was rugged, rough. And on a back that had been impaled with flesh hanging down. 4,000 breaths. And in the midst of that, he was able to lead a thief to God. In the midst of that, he could say, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. In the midst of that, he saw his mother and knew she had to be taken care of. And he told John, behold your mother. And he knew the mother's grief that was going to come. I said, I have a son now. You have a son to replace me. In the midst of those six hours. You see why I tell you you have to have staying power? You see why I'm telling you that you cannot let go? Why did he do all of that? Like I said last week, why couldn't Jesus just, you know, die without going to the cross and still save us? Why did he have to go through all of this pain? Because he wanted to make sure that you, you lived here free from pain. He wanted to make sure that when the enemy came at you to tell you things, to deal with your mind, he gave us, he, he, he wore that crown so that you can have his mind. He took the nails in his hand and bled from there so that it, anything you lay your hands to do now prospers. His back was beaten and those strips of skin falling off him so that you don't have to take any sickness on your body. So that you don't have to suffer anymore. He was nailed at his feet so that now you can take dominion. As long as you're standing on this earth, you cannot take dominion. You can say, Satan, no. This earth belongs to me now. So for six hours, then finally, he died. And after he died at 3 p.m., the Sabbath usually starts on Saturday, but they start preparing on Friday. And so if somebody was crucified on Friday, because they start the Sabbath technically by 4 p.m., they will go by around 3 to make sure that if they were not dead, they'll break their legs. And why did they break their legs? So that they cannot raise themselves up to breathe anymore. So when the legs are broken, they will suffocate and they will die. But when they got there, Jesus was already dead. And that fulfilled the scripture, a prophecy in Psalm 34 verse 20. 
that says he guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, I've talked about (laughs) the physical pain. What I really want to talk about now is the spiritual pain that Jesus went through. The soul torture that Jesus went through. When you all watch the movie or when we read it, we think that crucifixion, when Jesus was being scourged, when Jesus was being crucified, they put that little loincloth to cover his private area, right? That wasn't true. Jesus was naked on the cross. And think about it. Think about it. For a grown man to be naked in front of his mother. For a grown man to be naked in front of his disciples and apostles that he had been teaching. He was like, he's their leader. He's the one they looked up to. If you come to to church, the pastor you are following that has been teaching you, come and you meet your your pastor naked. Do you know how the shame that was for Jesus? Remember, he was a man. He was fully man. These are people that a week, few days earlier were, were, were screaming, Hosanna in the highest. Now they are seeing him. Hanging on the cross and they are mocking him. Oh, you could save others now. You can't even save yourself. Think of the shame. That must have been to him. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 and 3. Let us look only to Jesus. The one who began our faith. And who makes it perfect. He suffered death on the cross. But he accepted the shame as if it were nothing. Because of the joy that God put before him. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God's throne. He says, think about Jesus' example. So when God prompts you to see that person next to you at the gas station, Or at the store to say Jesus loves you and you are ashamed? Think about what he went through, the shame he suffered. No wonder he says, if you are ashamed of me here on earth, I will be ashamed of you in heaven. Because if he bore this amount of shame, nothing should make you ashamed of the gospel, ever. Ever. Let the shame come. Let people deride you. Let them mock you. Call you whatever name. Think of the shame he had to go through. And then take whatever shame comes with the gospel. Take whatever derision comes with the gospel. Amen? He says, verse 3, Think about Jesus' example. He held on while wicked people were doing evil things to him. So, you do not get tired and do not stop trying. The Bible says, for the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame of it. 
Oh, my brothers and sisters, I'm telling you today, endure whatever you have to endure for God's purpose to be fulfilled in your life. I told you all this morning that you have to have holding power, staying power. Don't be too quick to give up when things are hard. Let them despise you. What God has set in front of you, if you can see it, you will hold on. No matter how bad, maybe that marriage. If you can see people that in the future will say it is your marriage that made their marriage work, not knowing what you went through, then you can hold on. If it's that child of yours that right now everything doesn't seem like it would ever work. But if you know in the future that child is going to stand behind a pulpit and preach and thousands and thousands and thousands of souls will come to the Lord, then you can keep praying. Then you can keep holding on to the horns of the altar for that child. Don't ever give up easily. Don't ever give up easily. No wonder Paul said in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable that in lieu of all that we've talked about, in lieu of what Jesus did on Good Friday, that you serve him. That's just being reasonable. It is an unreasonable man, an unreasonable woman that we know what we just talked about here and said, God is not worthy of me to serve him. That's the highest level of being unreasonable. So that's what Paul is saying. Sin should not hold you back from serving the Lord. That pleasure if you put it before the Lord, that's unreasonable. That's unreasonable. And the funniest thing is, he did all of this while we were of no use to him whatsoever. How can you know this and not choose Jesus? How can you know this and not serve him with everything you have? How can you know this and not pour out your life for him as well? One thing a lot of us, and for those watching, or if you're at home or watching on TV in Africa and Europe, I keep telling people, the cross has two sides to it. This thing called Christianity has two sides to it. Now you can understand why we just talk about the love of God, the love of God, but there's a side to God called the wrath of God. Nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God. We all want to talk about the love of God. But can you understand why somebody will still spit on Jesus' face and God will not pour his wrath on them? How can you know all of this about Jesus and you sit on your back on him and God will not pour the wrath, his full wrath, that was supposed to be poured on you, but Jesus took it, and then you rejected that, all that wrath is going to come on you if you refuse to give your life to Jesus. Or if you're playing games with Jesus. In the Old Testament, when Moses 
went to the elders of, of, of the Israelites before they left Egypt. And he told them the instructions from God is that you take a lamb without blemish. You kill that lamb and you pour that blood in a bowl. And you take that blood with hyssop. And you go to your doorpost. He says you are going to strike it on both sides. And then you are going to strike it on the lintel. But he never told him to put the blood on the threshold. Do you know why? Because you must not tramp, stample on, or, or step on the blood of Jesus. You must not put your feet on the blood of Jesus. And isn't that what a lot of people are doing in this generation? The blood of Jesus that's supposed to protect you. The blood of Jesus that's supposed to be your covering. That's what he's supposed to do for you. You are not supposed to tread on the blood of Jesus. You are not supposed to disrespect the blood of Jesus. Because if you do, you are no longer under his covering. And so as believers, we have to be careful what we do with the blood of Jesus. Because it's very precious to God. And it's very precious to us who know and understand what this means. And so if you say you are a believer, careful. Watch your life and be sure you are not threading on the blood of Jesus. Because if you do the, the, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, you don't want it. That's why the Bible says when we live here after the rapture, when God pours his wrath on this earth, they will run to the mountain and beg the mountain to fall on them and crush them because it will be better for them to be crushed than to face the wrath of God. But you have the opportunity now. We have the opportunity now to stay under the covering of that blood and not to tread it underfoot. Anything that stops you from submitting to Jesus is not worth it. That boyfriend, that girlfriend is not too big for you to kick away. That pleasure, that pride is not too big for you to kick away. To fully commit to him because he fully committed to you and to me. Living righteous life, a righteous life is no longer a sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. You are not doing, we are not doing God any good when we live righteously. We're not. It is what is expected of us. It's a reasonable service. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 22 to 24. I alluded to it in the beginning. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, you have come to all of this, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and you have come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's what you have come to. Now that Jesus has died, now that he shed his blood, that blood, you come to that blood now because that blood ever speaks for you. That blood doesn't condemn you. That blood wants to give you everything that Jesus died for, for you. 
And in Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 says, when the enemy comes against you, when he accuses you, says, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. You have to know what the blood has done for you and that's what you must testify of. That's the blood. Tell the enemy the blood has, he took those stripes on his, on, 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 he was nailed on his hands so that I will never be poor. So that I don't have to walk and walk and walk and anything I touch is not blessed. When you have lack, that's what you must tell the enemy. Remind him of what the blood has done for you. At the Garden of Eden, God cursed Adam and Eve and said, you have to sweat. For you to eat, for you to have abundance, you have to sweat. And Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweat blood. And that sweat of his canceled the sweat that you have to sweat to put food on the table. Like I said last week, working 80 hours a week, Working three, four jobs, that's not the will of God for you. You can go to the devil and say, no, I don't have to sweat anymore. This hard. Jesus already sweat for me. And he sweat blood on my behalf. Hallelujah. We've come to God. God is the judge. This scripture says we come to God who is the judge. You have a judge only in the court. So every time you're walking here on earth, day and night, there's a courtroom that you may not even know about that you've appeared. You are there. Because the enemy is always accusing you. Those thoughts you keep having, those self-defeating thoughts. Those thoughts that you're not good enough. Those thoughts that you will never make it. All those thoughts, when they come to you, you arrive in the courtroom of heaven. And if you shut your mouth, guess who wins? But that blood is there speaking for you. And that blood works when you give testimony to the blood. And say, Satan, listen. The blood of Jesus took away my sins and condemnation. Took away my guilt. I don't have to feel guilt anymore because the blood of Jesus already did that for me. And immediately you said that you won that case. Amen? When the enemy comes and tells you you're not good enough, you just did that, you just did that, you just did that. Yeah, but I'm in the courts of heaven. Look at what the blood of Jesus did for me here, did for me here, did for me here. And when you testify to what the blood has done for you, that's when you have your victory. I want us to take time this morning to pray. I want us to pray this morning. If you are here today, and you just have stuff going on in your life, and you feel like you're not ready, you don't have what it takes, stand up on your feet. Because we're going to pray this morning. Because God told me in prayer this morning that I should pray specifically for those people that have stuff going on in their lives and they just don't have the staying power. God is telling you this morning to hold on. Hold on. That's all you need to do. Just hold on. If that is you this morning, I want you to come to the front. Just to hold on. Let me tell you, anything that God would want to do with you is not going to come in comfort. Pains is needed for you to achieve whatever God has for you. 
So embrace your pain. And say, God, whatever you want to do in my life through this pain, do it. So if you are here, see, see everybody coming out? Let me tell you something. You must never give up. Don't. I tell people, I have lived long enough. I have, be, I have had pain in my life. I have had pain in my life. But I refuse to let the enemy win. Today I'm seeing my four children. All my children were up here praising the Lord. You know what that did to my spirit? If I gave up when their father died, would they be up there today? I refuse and you must refuse to give up. There is hope. There is a future. There is a future. There is a future. There is something in front of you that you don't see. But if you can just hold on. If you can just hold on, don't give up. Please don't give up. There are mantles. There are mantles that are waiting to fall, but only when you are crushed. There is oil that is waiting to come out of you. The Bible says, I think it's in Leviticus chapter 12, 24, it says, Bring oil from crushed olives so that the lamps of others may not fail. There are lambs that are being held for your oil. And if you don't allow the crushing, that oil will not come to bless those to keep their lights burning. It is well. It is well. Sing that song, It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with you, young man. It is well. Just hold on. Just hold on. What God has for you, your eyes can't even see it now. But if you can just hold on. I pray for staying power over you, young man. No matter what it is, you will fulfill purpose. God will use you. He will exceed what you have in your mind. Just hold on. I pray, oh God, that you will strengthen his resolve. Strengthen his staying power in you, God. Thank you, Father. Give me some oil. Please give me some anointing oil.